Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hopcast. It is show number... 86. It is. I'm pretty sure it is. I was pretty sure it is this week. <laughs> and I've been drawing up plans for show number 100, trying to think of ways that we can make oh, yeah, it really that's... special. Oh, 14 weeks, that's what? Three months. Three it's months. pretty much Christmas, isn't it? Yes. We should make it very special and Christmassy. Yeah, we should. I've got an idea. Anyway, welcome to the show. This week, we have the wonderful... Rachel Sargent joining us. In fact, we joined her specifically. Yes, we, but only a few hours ago. Yeah, we've had a whistle-stop visit to Gloucestershire to visit the Painswick Rococo Gardens, which is the scene for the opening, sort of key scene in her new book for us, Her Deadly Friend, which comes out on Tuesday. And it's not the only book that we've got coming out on Tuesday, I is know, it? we've got another one. Bullets in the Sand. By A.J. Aberford, yes, which is the second of the George Zamet series. So we are extremely busy this week, as you can hear. We'll talk about that later. But welcome to the show. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together, well, you know what we do. We run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. And... Suspense. The other one. <laughs> yeah, the other one is it's known. And uh, we are proud to be the author, uh, the author, the publisher of 23 <laughs> different authors, which is fabulous. Some still to come out, but most of them now in print. When yeah, we get Rachel across the line on Tuesday. Yes. Well, we've still got um, authors who we haven't published yet coming across the line fairly soon. Yes, Rob Gittins. And Maureen. Maureen yeah. M- Mayant as well. Very exciting. <laughs> and uh, plenty to look at at our website, www.hobeck.net. We're going to uh, crack straight into the news. Only a couple of things we want to discuss. Um, while you're talking about this first story, I shall dig out the other one. Okay. So this is a story close to my heart because uh, in 1998, I think it was, I got my first job in publishing, uh, my first full-time uh official job in publishing i'd done some temping and maternity cover before that yeah so my first job in publishing in 1997 was as an assistant editor at oxford university press and my salary was thirteen thousand a year i remember it distinctly because i remember thinking well that's not that much but i'm doing something i love Mm. so i was i and I was starting not quite at the bottom rung the editorial ladder you can be in a um editorial assistant and then assistant editor so I started as assistant editor and I remember being a little bit disillusioned the first week because all I seemed to do was photocopy and in fact the first my very first job I was given this this enormous wad of paper which was the Oxford Companion to Turner and told to make three copies Good boy. Cool. But it wasn't Blimey. just a case of feeding the photocopier no because the authors had stapled edits <laughs> okay <laughs> 
<laughs> right. So, uh, well, the point is, I'm getting to the point is, there's an article in the bookseller about how young people entering the publishing industry now yes. are actually opting to leave, which, you know... So they're not they're not sustaining, you know, they're, they're interested. I mean, I lost count of the number of people I met, say, when I was doing uh, some volunteering with Exeter University in terms of careers advice. Everyone wanted to go into publishing. Yeah, it, it's a thing that, a lot. yeah, it, across the Atlantic as well, in America, you know, it's like a, seen as a dream job. If you love books and you love reading and you yeah. love that language and you don't think you're going to make it as a writer, what do you do? You become a publisher. Yeah. So what this article is saying is that the cost of living crisis, the cost of living in London, and the low pay, the extra hours they're expected to work in terms of reading manuscripts in their own time, uh, unpaid overtime essentially, is putting people off at the first rung. Yeah, because they just can't afford to do it. And and I can remember as well, I can remember that expectation that you clock off at, um, I think the official hours for me, it was nine till six, but I would get in at eight and I would leave at half six, seven o'clock. Yeah. That was normal. And you would take work home with you to read. Yes, of course. So they're, they're rejecting this current deal, uh, mm. the expectation uh, not waiting to get further up the ladder, where presumably at some point they might start making a living. Um, I'm not entirely surprised by this. I mean, the, I think the publishing industry itself has has woken up to this uh, in terms of trying to find a way to provide accommodation at, uh, you know, so buying, for argument's sake, somewhere to put interns and, and new people in the in- industry up in London that is funded by the industry itself but that's just a small gesture and a small token the fact is that realistically um i think that you know if mother and father were subsidizing you know johnny and tabitha to go into publishing Mm. that was fine and there are a lot that's why it's kind of a self-selecting thing we've seen it in london book fair there's a certain type of person who comes into publishing with a certain type of accent and a certain type of education and that's probably why, because economically, unless mummy and daddy are able to support you, you can't make a living. Well, this is a problem I had when I graduated from Exeter. I knew uh, there were a lot of my contemporaries who were doing, not just in publishing, but a cre- any sort of creative employment mm. upon graduation. They were able to either commute from their family home, which tended to be in the home counties, yes. or they had someone, a relative, a friend or a relative that they could stay with in London yes. while they... Yes. earned enough money to get there first well if if publishing is is uh serious about diversity it needs to sort this out well i could i had no chance so no. i went back home to stafford and i got a job as an administration assistant for a locksmith part-time because that's yeah. all i could get and i was very disillusioned and very uh, so the system upset me the, yeah I, I didn't know anyone in london or anywhere near london to no, stay I, with so I, I totally understand it and and uh, you know, my first job, even though it was in Exeter, uh, I was earning £9,900 a year uh, in 1995 as a trained, as a, as a graduate with a journalism qualification. And um, my take-home pay was about £600 a month, of which, you know, half of it went on rent. Yeah, so you were doing it for love. Yeah, it, it was a start. It was a foot in the door. I mean, I got to the BBC shortly after that and, um, you know, it got a bit more reasonable. But I was still living in a caravan for the first six months. Uh, because I couldn't afford to, you know, A, I wasn't on a long enough contract to find anywhere to to stay because I couldn't take a six-month rental because I didn't know I was going to be in the job 
week to week. No. Uh, I was on zero hours, effectively. Uh, each week, they tell me if they wanted me to come back. And eventually, I got a contract and I was able to sort of uh, find bricks and mortar to live in. But uh, again, you know, it was one of these things where if my parents hadn't had a caravan, it was a miserable winter. The olive oil froze. It got that bad. <laughs> um, if, if I hadn't had that option... That shows your class, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, the olive oil froze. It couldn't just be... It was awful. I couldn't have my salad. I was in a riding school in on the Hogsback near Guildford. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, no. I don't. I'm not surprised. And you know, the industry has been exploiting people for generations, and it's time they woke up to it. And it's true. I mean, also, I mean, there is this this chasm. So all of the pub, major publishers boasting about oh, twenty percent increase in this, that, and the other revenues up. Everyone's making record profits. All that, la 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 la. And yet, the bottom of the rung are not seeing any of it. And that's where the future talent is as well. So they need to take care of those people. They do. They do. Indeed, they do. Right. The second story we're going to uh, touch on before we speak to Rachel um, is an article in The Telegraph. And it was a sort of thought piece, I suppose, uh, that I read. And the headline is why Amazon is prime target for cancellation as households cut spending. And this is about Amazon Prime and the the fact is that Amazon Prime membership in the UK has fallen by 590,000 uh, in the second quarter of this year. And that's according to research commissioned by the media recu- regulator Ofcom. Now, of course, Amazon Prime, Amazon Prime offers for currently, uh, if you're paying monthly, $7.99, uh, the, you know, fast delivery service on pretty much every product they sell you know you have to look for the prime logo but nonetheless pretty much next day delivery and in some places like london same day delivery yeah and on top of that you get amazon prime video you get uh, access to some of amazon music you get prime reading you get to borrow stuff from the um, kindle unlimited library as well and uh, there are magazine subscriptions on there there are all sorts of benefits you get from being a prime member it's a pretty good package, but the economy has tanked worldwide, and in the UK alone, five hundred ninety thousand people have withdrawn, and that is further information. So Netflix lost two hundred ten thousand subscribers uh, year on year, and so essentially, uh, it, it is indication that people are just cutting the extra, you know. The flab, the stuff that uh, they like to have but don't need. And, of course, this will have an impact to some extent on what's available for uh, us as publishers in terms of the number of people within the ecosystem borrowing books and getting a page reading income. And, in fact, this month we have noticed that our page reading income has become a smaller proportion of what we make in sales. It's about... It has been as ahead of sales mm. in terms of revenue, and now it's fallen to a proportion of about fifty-six percent for uh, ebook and paperback sales, and now forty-four percent for Kindle Unlimited reading. So that I think is an indication that, 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 that you know fewer people are using that service. That's basically a sign. It is. It is, uh, and I think that this is. Um, also, I mean, Amazon Prime, 
they kind of lose money on it, but they're about to put the price up as well, so which I'm sure will hasten this decline in oh, subscriber absolutely. numbers. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that it doesn't sound much, does it? Is it seven ninety nine? I should well, know, I, I, I have got Amazon Prime. So Amazon is poised to increase UK prices on September the fifteenth by one pound a month, uh, meaning that the annual subscription will go up. Uh, apparently from £79 to £95. Well, that doesn't quite work out mathematically, but nonetheless, a quid extra, so eight ninety nine, yeah, would be the... Uh, so that could hasten the decline. And, yeah. you know, and it makes us wonder whether we go wide and publish our e-books across a number of other platforms like Kobo, et cetera, like that. But, you know, as yet, Kindle Unlimited Income is still a very big proportion of what we're generating, and... Some of our most popular books are generating, you know, three to five thousand page reads a day on a really good day. Yeah, so it it, it would be a risk. It's a big risk, but something we need to be aware of. I mean, you know, there's no question, as we keep saying in this podcast for the last few five, uh, four or five weeks, really, that I think everyone in publishing expects there to be a squeeze because it is discretionary. I mean, it is one of those things where it's not an essential. If you can't heat your home. You're not necessarily going to be going out and buying books. Uh, I've always thought that Amazon Prime offered a fantastic deal if you can afford, you know, to find that eight ninety nine a month, as it will be from September the fifteenth, for the level of entertainment that it's offering. Yeah, and also, like you were talking about the free postage and that it's coming the next day, so people don't just buy books on Amazon. No, no, of course not. You know, uh, but they are suspending their Amazon groceries service as well, which also suggests that people um, are stepping away. So that they, they, they were rolling it out across the play, uh, the, the piece, and that's been stopped a little. Uh, they're halting it for now. So mm. lots of indicators to suggest that you know everything's not quite as rosy for Amazon as it has been. No. Okay, let's get to our signature interview for this week. And uh, I know last week we promised you Zoe Sharp this week. That was my fault, completely my fault. I got a little bit befuddled. Zoe is actually coming on next week. Yeah, so we spoke to her this week, and it's a great interview, wonderful. Um, If you wanted to know about how to basically kill somebody with a biro, she's your woman. (laughs) In fact, any household object can be used as a weapon in the hands of Zoe Sharp. And I can't wait to try some of the things out. Watching out now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Zoe is coming next week. So this week, it's Rachel Sargent, who, as I mentioned earlier, is releasing Her Deadly Friend, her first police procedural suspense novel, with us at Hobeck Books. And previously, she has been published by one of the really, really big publishers. <laughs> and she's still with them for her psychological suspense novels and psychological thrillers, but has come to us with Her Deadly Friend. It's set in a semi-fictional city of Gleevem. And uh, that uh, is loosely referred to. It's Gloucester, but it's the uh, it's uh, it's 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 a fictionalized version of it. And uh, as part of that, very close to Gloucester is the Rococo Garden at Painswick, oh, Painswick uh, House. Absolutely lovely place. So it, it, gorgeous. Please go and visit, listeners. You'll yeah, love it. it's up on the you know as the Cotswolds roll away from Cheltenham and Gloucester, you get Painswick just before you reach Stroud. And uh, it is spectacular, Rococo Garden, uh, the only one still existing in the UK, apparently. And uh, it is the scene for the opening murder of this book, (laughs) Her Deadly Friend. And so it was an absolute delight to meet Rachel for the first time. And Mr. Rachel. And Mr. Rachel. Nigel, thank you very much for your (laughs) hospitality today. Uh, Let's speak then to Ray Sargent. 
I'm trying to quote from an English country garden, but nothing, none of it's coming to mind, what apart is, from the rude version. What is it? Oh, In song. an English country garden. It feels like we should be able to quote from an English country garden. I know, garden. but we had a rude version when I was a, about seven years old at school, which involved in pants and ants and things like that. So um, we won't repeat that. But anyway, let's, uh, let's welcome our guest to this wonderful garden. We're in the uh, Painswick Rococo Garden, uh, which is close to Stroud, Gloucester, Cheltenham, in the Cotswolds, basically. Beautiful spot up on the hills. And we're with Rachel Sargent. Thanks Hello. for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you for coming all this way to see me in my local garden. I was going to say in not... your garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my personal garden. Yeah. yeah, you must you must put some effort in to keep this thing going. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, a couple of hours, a couple of hours a week. <laughs> Where do you get the time for the writing? I don't know, but anyway, uh, what a beautiful spot! Um, and you've been coming here for years, so you've seen it evolve yes, and, and develop. Yes, it has. It's changed an awful lot. The the people who run it and volunteer here have put so much effort into it to build it up and make it an attraction for all the family, not just for garden enthusiasts, but somewhere that children can come as well. There's yeah. actually quite a lot of people here today, aren't there? Yeah. All, all ages yeah. as well. And yeah. yeah, It's amazing. And We're looking on the, what do they call it, the Excedra Garden. Am I saying that right? On the right-hand side. Yeah. It's kind of formally laid out um, and uh, there's some towering sunflowers just in the distance yeah, so lovely, but it's, it's beautiful and all these little pagodas and, and, and we found ourselves mm. a lovely curved bench which makes it perfect for having a, a podcast guest. So, Can I just ask a question I'm not yes. very good with trees but what type of trees are these? Well they're, they're apple a, trees They're apple trees. Oh are they? Yeah Can, um, you, can you see the apples actually growing on them love? Yeah. No Yeah they're, they're going to have a Oh just about, apples, just about, just yeah. about I can. You might need to run up and have a look Yeah, I mean they look like um Granny Smiths or something like that, by the look of it. Eaters, anyway, rather and, than cookers. And a, and a fairly new feature here. You see the the long grass. Mm. They've, they've they've done a bit of rewilding here. That's now planted with hundreds of daffodils. It's been planted in the last three four years, I would say. So if you come in spring, that, that is amazing. the most amazing display of daffodils. So that's one of the developments we're talking about, the yeah. developments we've seen over the years. That's certainly one of them, and it, it is absolutely fantastic. Well, you can understand why you would do that. I mean, that brings visitors in in March, just as the ground is beginning to firm up a tiny weeny bit after a hard winter, perhaps. You're going to come and have a look at the daffodils. Yeah. And, and, and then, then the bluebells. Yes. Well, the garden's mainly known for its snowdrops in yeah. January and February. That's that's the big pull for this is garden. It? Traditionally, right. that's what brings people here. But they very cleverly started to plan a whole year of visitor attraction. So they've got the daffodils in March. Then they've got the bluebells, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot more because of my book um so they're really developing it and then in the summer as you can see we've got all the beautiful summer flowers to our right and Mm. the sunflowers as you mentioned in the distance yeah yeah. and then in the autumn apples yeah yeah they do a special apple day um with events for children in i think it's late september early october they do that that's lovely Mm. well we are here we are here to talk about a book we're talking about her deadly friend which is your first Hobeck book with us as Ray Sargent, writing as Ray Sargent, and as they proudly say in the gift shop, because it's already available, even though it's not published yet, (laughs) it's available in the gift shop here. The first chapter is set here, albeit under a different name. Yes. And let's uh, let's get into the the, the thrust of the plot. Um, There's a murder. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you is. have to say that in yeah. the Scottish accent. There's a mother. Or indeed, I could do it in a, I know, Gloucestershire Go accent. On, then. Uh, murder. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible, isn't it? Um, <laughs> murder. Uh, yeah, and that's the inciting incident that kicks off her deadly friend, uh, which we're exceptionally excited about publishing this week. So um, take us into the story. Um, we have somebody being murdered uh, by the name of Krista. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's quite a dark start obviously you know you want an inciting incident to be dark but i think what's very interesting with this with um with your story is the way that it sweeps up so many people bit by bit Mm. and it kind of catches you right you know all the way to the end you're thinking right could they be it could they be it? i love that yeah was that your inspiration in terms of writing your first police procedural like this uh, yes. Um, what I was really going for was the suspense side. So you've got mm. the who done it. Yes, there's, there's several murders, and you've got your police trying to track it and yeah. work out who's done it. But what I also wanted was a sense of suspense. Um, so you've got the the who done it, which is what has happened. Yeah. But you've also got the suspense: what will happen. And we don't know what will happen because our lead detective, as well as investigating all the crimes. There's something, someone from her past who is being linked, albeit very tentatively, to several of the crimes. So she's having to investigate this person from her past, all the time thinking to herself, am I doing this because the evidence points this way or am I doing it because I don't like this person? Yes. Uh, And we also get to hear the story from the viewpoint of that person. The person's called Amy. It's an old school rival. Yeah, Amy Ashby is the character. Amy Ashby is the the rival. The main detective is Steph. Steph Lewis. She's the detective inspector. So we see the story from both viewpoints and Amy also is unhappy with with what's going on and we don't really know for most of the story what what Amy's connection is with the crimes and what she's hiding mm. but what I also like is the way that both Steph and Amy they've got their present life at the beginning of the book but then when this happens when, when they get involved in the story they're thinking back to what they were like before and they're thinking back to how they got to where they are now, and it makes mm. them sort of reevaluate things. Well, I think, I think it's interesting. You start with a twist. The key twist here within that relationship is that you've got a detective inspector who was a bully at school and made Amy's life a misery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that she starts to, this is Steph, Steph Lewis is starting to wrestle with a sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of her prime suspects. Is the woman is the is the girl that she tormented at school? Yeah. Who also, but she also feels there's a an inciting incident in the prologue that she was uh, being unfairly treated by the school. Yeah. Um, that she was being blamed for everything bad that ever happened to Amy was yeah. her fault. Yeah. And the dreadful mother of Amy always pinning the blame what are you going to do what are you going to do to mm. sort these these girls out these horrible mm. girls and so there's this sense of injustice there as well which has driven us forward presumably into the police so you've got you know you've got an, a detective with whom we have um some empathy but at the same time we know deep down um she wasn't always uh honorable no and at the start of the book she's pretty well forgotten about her past 
she's pretty well sorted at the beginning. Mm. She's a detective inspector. She has her own home, a lovely flat in a nice area of Gleevem. She lives with her 17-year-old son, who's doing well at school. Her parents, who are nicely off, run Mm. their own businesses. They live on the other side of the city. She gets on well with all her colleagues. She's respected by her chief inspector. Things are pretty good for Steph at the start. But by the end of the novel, she's perhaps not in such a good place. And she's moving into book two. She's going to have to face some some serious memories, really, Mm. or kinds of things, some connected with Amy, some not. She's going to have to deal with a lot. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the um, that opening scene, though, look at the, the cover, which uh, is another Jane Mapp um, <laughs> masterclass. Uh, what was the thinking behind the covers? So what we've, I mean, I, I'm no good with flowers, so what are we looking at here? These are bluebells. Oh, no. Bluebells, right? Oh, the bluebells right. from the uh, gardens behind. Yeah, right behind us on this bench where we're sitting. Yeah. there is a bluebell glade, mm. and uh, my scene my fictional scene mm. in my fictional gardens, the Georgian gardens, I wrote in right behind us in the Bluebell Glade, which is uh, a, new, a newish feature here at the Painswick Rococo Garden. It's something they're developing, yeah. Yeah. and it, it grows year on year, as flowers do. Yeah. Um, and my inciting incident takes place in that bluebell glade I feel a shiver coming down yes. my spine now but I love so, that though the fact you know the flowers are beautiful and they're, they're sort of pure aren't they but you have this sort of gritty event yeah. that happens there yes yes and normally in there you've got um, sort of just a light chorus of bird song in the background but at the time of the incident the birds are going bonkers oh. they're going absolutely bonkers they sense uh, the approaching danger. They do. Yeah. We, yeah. I was talking about this with my boys yeah. in the car the other day, actually. We were talking about how when there's an eclipse, everything goes silent. Or when mm. there's a thunderstorm, you know, you have a feeling that the thunder's coming because the, the bird life and the insect life acts differently. Yes. Because they're yeah. sort of in tune to yeah. these sort of vibrations, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I think you uh, your, your world of Gleevem, it's... Can uh, we... Say where it's based on? Yes, it's based on Gloucester. Uh, the name is based on the Roman name for Gloucester, which is Glevum, hmm. G L E V U M. So I thought I'd call my city Glevum, but as you pointed out, it didn't really sound like a very modern city name. So changed the spelling to Gleveham, G L E V E H A M, which is immediately sounds like a proper city or a proper town. Yep. So it's based on Gloucester. The reason for changing the name really is because I have fictionalised it. I've moved places around. Well-known landmarks in Gloucester are not where they normally are. I've also imported some from other places. There's a pub appears in it, which is, the last time I looked was in Shrewsbury. Um, <laughs> oh, which pub's that? The Armoury. Ah, <laughs> I haven't called it that in my book. But, um, they do so, good food there. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there's a lot of um, playing God and moving stuff around in fiction. So I needed to change the name because anybody who knows the real Gloucester is going to think, well, she's never been there. What on earth? This, this, that, yeah, okay. that garden. So you basically yeah. avoid that happening yes, and people yeah. saying, oh, that's yeah. not there. But I also wanted to, I don't mind making the connection. In fact, I'm in encouraging the connection because I think it's nice for people who do know Gloucester mm. to read it and think oh I bet she's based that yeah, on yeah there's da, an da, echo da, da. of this and then yes. you know oh, I, yeah. I bet that's that yeah. yes yes so Absolutely. that's the idea 
Yeah, and I and you know when we were discussing this switch because when we were presented with the book, it was Gloucester. Yes. Yeah. Um, there is that other thing that hangs over the city still for those old enough to remember. Yes, um, I mean there are, there are murders in in every city, and I'm writing this book for entertainment. It is just for fun, and I mean absolutely no disrespect to real people who have been the victims of crime and mm. are the families mm-hmm. of victims of crime. There's no entertainment in that at all, and that's another reason for really making the distinction between a real city with real people and this fictional right. world I've created for entertainment. It is. I mean, you know, this is something that we we touch on on the pro the program quite a bit but it is weird that particularly in britain we just love a good murder fictional one mm. the real yeah. thing will acres and acres of space dedicated to the to the ones that really resonate i mean there are lots of them going on that don't resonate but you know you think if when i was uh living in cambridge um uh, or at least afterwards uh we had the soham murders mm. and that was months and months of coverage um, and it is extraordinary, and the sort of let the depths of anger and resentment, and uh, that build up across as a, as a sort of collective feeling, and yet we'll escape into a book where people are getting bumped off. Do you know what? I think it's because we like puzzles. I was just going to say that for me, it's the puzzle. Mm. Um, but there's no sense of um, shame at fe- enjoying a puzzle because it's fictional. Yes. Yeah. So that's why we like fictional murders because we know nobody's been hurt at all. There's no harm. And we can enjoy the puzzle, solving the puzzle. Well, yeah, but don't... Here's another question, though. Isn't, isn't the whole <laughs> point of the thing we should actually feel some impact by some of the deaths because we've followed those characters and we're, you know, we're... Perhaps... Well, what, what I've tried to do is show the characters before they're murdered. So we, mm. we see a little bit of their backstory, their moment in time, so that we do feel some sympathy for those people. And then I have not shown the actual murder particularly no. so there's nothing from the viewpoint of the killer showing them getting any kind of pleasure from mm. the crime so i'm i'm hopefully not sensationalizing the crime and i am generating sympathy for the victims by showing their life just a snapshot prior yes. to their deaths yes yeah i mean that that makes those deaths land more, well, I hope uh, so. Yeah. But it is, as Rebecca said, it. I think it's the puzzle. Mm. I think it's the puzzle that excites us and hopefully the suspense of it. Yes. And also getting inside people's heads. I think we love to try and work out what's going on in someone's head, whether it's you know, a murder of a victim or uh, the murder of themselves. We just want to, I don't know, we just love that, sort mm. of the psychology of... Yeah. And I think that's true in your book and a lot of our books is that you know you can actually see how ordinary people with solid backgrounds and you know all the things that you know that we take for uh, value as uh, as a as a you know steady life and nice car and nice house whatever can suddenly through one thing changing in their lives become yes. those people who, yeah. who who commit murder or mm-hmm. you know or who are murdered yes and also changing the lives of everyone around yes them. yes yeah. Yeah, that that that, yeah. that impact well this series of murders is going to change Steph, my detective's mm. life, when she went to work that morning, all she was worried about was the fact that she'd just had a day off sick because mm. she's, she's not really very well. It, the story takes place just after the early May bank holiday in 2018. So she's had the May bank holiday off, but she spent the whole thing in bed because she's been poorly. Yeah. And she's had to have an extra day off. So this is the Wednesday 
And really all she's thinking about is she's got to shake off this illness before her son starts worrying about her and she's got to get to work to solve this first murder. She's mm. no idea what she's driving into because she drives up to these gardens. The second chapter is set at these gardens when she arrives at the crime scene and we see the garden viewed through her slightly cynical eyes because she's not really interested in the garden. She's trying to get to the, to yeah. the murder scene and she has no idea what's about to happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because she she starts off as as this robust, strong character, uh, and events affect her. But also physically, she started to to to, to crumble a little bit. Yes. You know, the, the, yeah. there is this thing hanging over, which, like so many of us, whenever you know, a consistent pain. And in this case, it's her head. She has terrible headaches, doesn't she? Yes. We get you just put it down to oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I haven't drunk enough water. I haven't, mm. you know. But it's two weeks, it's three weeks, it's whatever. Yeah. And by the end of the book, we're not quite addressing it yet, really, are we? No. In Steph's life. No, you know, it's she's, something to you know, carry I, over. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's very human. That is very mm. human, because I'm sure most people have had something like that. You know, it's, it's a niggling, like you say, yeah. something niggling, and you think, oh, it's, it, you get really frustrated because you want to get on with your job and your life and everything, and you don't want to be... Um, laid down for it and then you think in the back of your head you're thinking should I do something about this yes and you were worried what that might if it isn't just a niggle mm. you, you don't want to face that so no. you put that off we were so excited when we got your submission because I recognised your name and we'd met kind of well, uh, we'd seen yeah. you on the yeah. stage yeah. we'd seen you on the stage and, and I'd read and, your book because I bought oh, the book thank you from yeah, so Morecambe Morecam and Vice wasn't it yeah. that's right so that was <laughs> yeah. our first contact point it was you know funnily enough a couple of other authors as well have come along the way through that as well, so uh, which has been wonderful. But in terms of your uh, where this sits in your career, and this is obviously a departure from what you've written before for another publisher, um, what was the attraction in coming into this genre? I really wanted to do something that combined police procedural with suspense and it, it was the suspense bit that that's always what interests me my previous mm, books have yeah, been yeah. suspense but I wanted to create a series I've never done really done that before so I wanted the the puzzle element the the, the who done it but I really really wanted this suspense so I was so pleased when you were a publisher because a lot of publishers don't like that that sort of hybrid no. they want you can write suspense or you can write who done it? But they don't really want the two together. It's very really strange, so. isn't it? Because we we both of us really like that combination. Because another book we've got coming out in November is very similar in that way. That's uh, the Confession by Maureen. Is that Mines. Maureen's? Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. Can I be, can I review it, please? <laughs> yes, you can. I'll send you a copy now. If you like. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, please. Yeah, I'd love that. That's a, that's a cracker yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know you're right. I mean, there is that danger. Um, I mean. Well, I mean, look, these publishers are longer established than us and, and have figured out the angles, but we're trying to break that. So. Well, I think that's good. I think that's absolutely fine. Hmm. Um, let, let, that's great. I don't have a problem with that. Let's have uh, a new publisher come along who twists the genre a bit. You're specialising in crime, mystery, suspense, and I can't remember what... Thrillers. The, thank you. <laughs> Thrillers. That, that You've said, right, this is us, this is what we're doing. So within those... Um, sub-genres we're, we're trying new things out we're yep. twisting it we're taking on new authors and that's great that's that's your your brand yep. so yep. so it's really great for me to be part of that brand and have the opportunity to write this suspense stroke police procedural yeah, yeah. and well you know I th we have every faith that 
uh, as ever with these things, it takes time to, to build up momentum or whatever, but that it will be successful. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that when it boils down to it, when we read it, we went, cracking story. Oh, thank publish you. It. you know, that's, <laughs> that's what it boils down to. And, you know, name value was, was obviously, you know, initially it went, oh, I'm sure I've heard of Rachel. And oh, I knew straight away. I recognised yeah. her name. I was like, book's over there. I've got the book. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, um, obviously, you've been this 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 path before in the sense of you know we have published first time authors but you're an experienced author with a big publisher and uh, what lessons have you learnt over that journey do you think um, I think you've just got to write the book you want to write um, it's no so I'm, I am published by a big publisher as well it's no good just trying to write what you think the publisher might like it's got to come from your heart yeah. so I wanted to write this this hybrid book. I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to do a series. I knew it wasn't really going to sit well with them, but I just really, really wanted to do it. And I think you've got to. You, you spend two years writing a book. You've got to love mm. what you do to, to make it the best it can. It just wouldn't work if you didn't. Mm. And in terms of you know working in that industry, what, the things that have been surprising to you, did you have expectations as to how publishing would work, and then that's the reality has borne that out or not? Um, I didn't. I don't think I really had any expectations. What what I've found interesting is to be told what my brand is and what my what my genre is because I didn't know until I was yeah. published. I thought I just wrote crime, <laughs> um, and it's it's being told. Well, no, actually, you're writing a psychological thriller. I'd never heard of it. <laughs> and so now I understand a little bit more about mm. all the subgenres. Mm. I thought if it's got a body in it, it's crime. <laughs> that was as much as I knew, you know. But that's, you actually raised an interesting point because I think publishers get a bit stuck in their heads in that they assume everybody knows what a psychological thriller is. But does the average reader think, oh, I, I read psychological thrillers, I read police procedurals? I, I think some... Because I didn't know the terms no. before. No, I, I think some people do know that that's their thing. But actually what they're judging on, if they look at the cover and go, oh, it'll be that sort of thing. And that's mm. what really... This is one of the restrictive things about covers in the sense that you, you know, you, I mean, you know, we could have done what everyone else does is put um, woman in a red coat s- disappearing in Steph the Steph Lewis in a, in, a, in, a, in a red coat walking through the, the bluebell wood or something, yeah. you know, and that would have been, you know, everyone would know exactly what we're dealing with then. Um, but I also think that would pigeonhole it more as police procedural yeah. and less as thriller. I possibly, think, possibly. possibly yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, you know more about this than I do. <laughs> but whereas this cover, I think is much more your suspense yes. type yes. cover. I mean, because we did do some research looking at comparable covers and authors on Amazon, and the, this is definitely a sort of a, an idea, a concept, this sort of mm. uh, suspense. Yeah. yeah. I'm just looking yeah. at the tagline again, because I remember, when we, you know, collab- collaboratively we came up with it. Yes. The closer she gets, the more people die. <laughs> <laughs> you you know. have to have that voice, though. You have to have the trailer voice. <laughs> <laughs> A woman, you know, <laughs> one woman, <laughs> uh, identifying as a woman. No, <laughs> in the modern day. Anyway, um, no, I mean that's that's fascinating, isn't it? That, that you know that there are these nuances that we all obsess about in the publishing industry, and yet the punters will 
they'll either like it or they won't. Yeah. And that's and and that, our job as publishers and and together with you in, in terms of publicity is to try and find those people for whom it resonates and they're going to recommend it and say yeah. you've got to get this book, yeah. um, which you know is it, is sometimes a hit and miss affair, but you know we always start with great faith and confidence <laughs> that it's all going to work out. But uh, what about your writing process then? When 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 did you start? committing yourself as a novelist oh well it's a funny <laughs> it's a funny old thing it was uh, 1999 yep I was at a party mm. uh, it was quite a posh party a bit of a ball thing really. Oh, I, really I had a posh frock on yeah and you know sometimes at these big parties they'll have table guests going around sort of magicians or oh, yes. oh yes, I know yes, sort yes, of indeed. thing yeah. well they had a a palm reader <laughs> going round so I thrust my palm at her and she said ooh (laughs) not a good start (laughs) she said ooh you're very creative and I said no no I'm not oh yes yes you are do you you play the piano I said no I'm tone deaf don't play the piano so she's still holding my hand at this point she won't give it back she said oh well no you're definitely creative Um, are you an artist no, I don't know one end of a pencil from the other. <laughs> Not an artist. Right. No, you're definitely creative. Have you ever done any writing? And I went, oh, well, I used to like writing at school. Oh, well, she said, I think you should write a book. You're very creative. So we got there in the end. <laughs> and um, I actually took this and I swanned around for six months going... Do you know, I could be a writer. Could be a ri- <laughs> yeah. Didn't do any writing, but oh, I could be a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was living in Germany when while all this was happening. Mm. And then I moved back to the UK, moved to Shrewsbury, and they were having their first ever literature festival. Ah. And there was a writer called David Armstrong who was giving a workshop on writing crime. So I went to it because, you know, I could be a writer. Do you know well, that? Yeah, yeah. because it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's written. Yeah. Your yeah. palm <laughs> yeah. says so. Yeah. So I went, I went and um, he said as an exercise we had to write about somebody chained to a chair in their own house because they'd been kidnapped and what was going through their mind. Mm. So it was just a five-minute exercise, so I wrote my thing. And we had to read it out in the class. And everybody was really complimentary about mine, including David Armstrong. They said, oh, it's really good. So I went out of that workshop to walk down the road in Shrewsbury, went into a shop to buy a drink because it was a hot day, and there was a copy of Writing Magazine on the shelf. I'd, yeah. never, I'd never seen yeah. Writing Magazine. So I thought, well, obviously I am a writer so now. So you need to buy it. So I, I bought this magazine, <laughs> yeah. and inside was an advert for the Crime Short Story Competition, their annual Crime mm. Short Story Competition. So I decided to write up this one five-minute paragraph as a short story sent it off and it won the competent my first ever short story won the crime writing short story competition yeah and my prize money um paid for just about paid for me to go to harrogate to collect my prize (laughs) (laughs) so so i thought yay this is it i'm a writer i mean it actually was didn't i didn't have a lot of success after that but that initial Mm. getting that first that validation that that made me keep going through the next few years when I didn't really get anything. But that, that was, so in answer to your question, where did your writing journey start? That's that amazing. That was it. That's, quite, that's a fantastic <laughs> So if one. I ever see that Dutch yeah, you need to again, ex- I, I need to buy her a pint. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, my, my, my broadcasting journey started on my tour bus, uh, my very first tour. And this Scottish guy came up to me and goes, you've got a great voice. You've just got a great voice for broadcasting. You should go into it. And I went, 
Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. No, no. I really mean it. You really have a great voice for broadcasting. You know, take my word for it. I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I thought nothing of it, really. You know, I was thinking, it lands a kernel. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. What, you do, what do you do when you're studying for ancient history? You know, whatever I was doing at the time. Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> Failed my A-levels and all that sort of thing. And it turned out, then I saw, watched a show called Fame Academy. I can't remember when it was. Oh, I remember Fame you remember, Academy. You know, yes, so I, I think, uh, what was his name? Lamar uh, came yeah. out uh, of that. And the headmaster of the Fame Academy was a guy called Richard Parks. Yeah. That was the guy on the bus. Oh, my goodness. Head of Capital Radio. What bus was this? This was an open-top tour bus around Cambridge. When I was 18, I did my first... Oh, you were the tour guide? I was the tour guide on the and bus. And he happened to be on the bus mm-hmm. as a as a. And I didn't realise who it was, but it was the, one of the most influential people in the radio oh industry yeah. telling me that I should be a broadcaster. Wow, wow. And so that was, you know, I wish he'd offered me a job properly then, but uh, as you are, you know, th- this is how these things can start. Yeah. And, and actually, yeah, from there on, I decided that's what I was going to do and... Yeah, and here the, you are in the garden. <laughs> I am, yeah, yeah. But it's no, it's that's a fantastic story. I mean, yeah. it really is. I love that. I mean, <laughs> I had a similar thing. I had my palm read when I was in Japan. Not quite so exciting as that, but the guy did say he said, "You're going to settle close to where your family are." And at the time, I was in Japan because I wanted to be yeah. as far away as possible. And I was like, "No, you're wrong. I'm not going to go back to Staffordshire. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to live there. I'm sorry, you're wrong." <laughs> And where are you now? Staffordshire. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it strange? Where have you dragged me? Staffordshire. Staffordshire. <laughs> <laughs> the cultural desert as I know it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's that's fantastic. I mean, in terms of then, you know, the, the years where it didn't quite work out, what kept you going? What kept me going was that first win, that the, mm. my first ever short story won a national competition. I thought, well, if I can do this. I can really can do this. Um, and t- t- having such ridiculous confidence, I decided to expand this short story, which had originally been the five minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. expanded it into an 80,000-word novel. <laughs> and somehow or other, I managed to get it published. I got it published by Robert Hale, who, who are no more, but they, they published it. So again, that was another confidence boost. But I, I reached the point, I think it was about 2000 and, between 2010 and 2014, Apart from a couple of short stories and a letters to editors, I really wasn't getting anything. Mm. So I, I felt that my writing had plateaued and I needed some help. Yeah. So I took the decision to do a master's in creative writing, which I did part-time, distance learning. Mm. And that was a game changer. And who, who was that with? Which, which uh, it was with Lancaster. The, okay. the, the, real, yeah. the, the, the thing that really made it was we were put into syndicate groups so I was working with four other people like me who yeah. wanted to get published. And we had to critique each other's yes. work. Yes, yeah, that and group that, critique. That, yeah. that was so good that I am still sharing work with three of them. We, we graduated in, I think it was 2015. Yeah. And we're still sharing work on yeah. a regular basis. And that, that's just the most valuable thing for mm. me. Um, so if I can give them a name check because they're fantastic. Of course. Yeah, please. Um, one of them is called Jessie Payne. She's, she's just signed with an agent. Uh, Fergus Smith, he's got some fantastic self-published novels, really brilliant, some military stuff, fantastic. And Peter Garrett, who writes wacky sci-fi, and he's published <laughs> by Luna Press. Brilliant. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, it's interesting you say that. because it's quite interesting range of genres. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. But it's, yeah. it's interesting because 
we've touched on this a lot in the podcast because I've also quite a number of our authors have been through the um, University of East Anglia MA in crime writing and buddied up in that way yeah you know and still yes and still are. and their yeah. manuscripts go through those hands before they come to us tend yeah. to and also when we were talking to William Shaw at, at uh, Slaughter in Southwold his his contemporaries has a little group um and uh, C, uh what's his name CJ Sampson is one of his right. contemporaries yeah. and they yeah. bounce each other I mean you know he's very ill at the moment as, as as many of us know but you know that sort of uh, it's invaluable when you have those relationships, people you trust, opinions you trust, who can help you spot things that you hadn't perhaps, or give you the confidence to, yeah. to 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 drive on. So yeah, that's that's terrific. In terms of when that validation and you know eventually you got published and got got a big um, publisher behind you, what was that feeling like after all that? You know, that well, it's kind journey. of bewilderment, really, bemusement, because mm. you you just don't really know really what you've got you just kind of just carry on doing the same thing because everything is so slow so um by the time I'd got the the deal for my first novel after that I was sort of two more novels down the road writing so you don't really realize it I don't think I think you just got to keep going with the writing and and just have faith in your publisher with for everything else. <laughs> Long may that be the case. I hope we can fulfil that uh, as one of your publishers. Um, what um, in terms of your day then when you're writing? What do you aim for when you're you know if you're committed to you know? I don't have a word on? count. No, never ever had a word count. I just um, when I'm doing a first draft, I write a chapter. So I don't know how long a chapter is. I don't really don't really pay much attention to mm. that. Um, but I work uh, because I'm full time now. I just get to my desk about nine o'clock. Um, I work through till about five o'clock. Really, mm-hmm. I just just do what I can. I mean, a lot of it as you get more published, a lot of it is um, engaging on social media actually, yeah. and, and uh, liaising with other writers and trying to read other writers' works and and do mm. reviews of other people's stuff really. And, and tr- building try. the network yeah, yeah a lot of it is that um in terms of direct contact from readers because you know you presumably do you get emails from from people directly one, about one or two yes uh, not not masses but yeah i've had i've had one or two i'm building up contacts with some lovely bloggers some some fantastic mm. fantastic bloggers who, i totally love the bloggers yeah well they're the, the oil that makes the thing yeah. move i mean really yeah. i mean where it's hard to imagine the, the publishing industry without them now but they weren't there 15 years no. ago in, in in any formal sense they might have you know provided you know a magazine or something like that you know printed out on a on a banner machine or something <laughs> but um it is it is extraordinary just how valuable and influential they've now become um, and and so willing when i mm. when i approached them the first time it was my publishers said here's a list of bloggers going and I thought well, what's a blog tour what's a blog what do you know what you're going on about <laughs> so I uh, he gave me a list of about 100 and I I looked up each of them and I only approached the ones that said they'd got space and also wrote books like the sort of thing I was writing mm. uh, read books like yes I'm sorry. um and they were so lovely and I thought they're gonna think who's this random nobody contacting them about her book and they were so nice and helpful and really supportive. Even the ones who didn't have time to read it said, write me a post mm. and I'll, I'll put it yeah. on my blog. It's just fantastic. And um, this is now the fourth book that I'm um, 
engaging with the bloggers with. Still fantastic. And new bloggers coming on all the time who yes. want to help. Yeah. It's, it's just great. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we rely on them. I totally... Yeah. And I, I talk to them about all sorts. I tell them what I'm cooking. I tell them what the cat's doing. Uh, they're friends now. Yeah, and I find it quite... I mean, you know, this is bigging ourselves up, but when, when we sometimes meet the bloggers at festivals and whatever, they're so excited to, see, to meet Rebecca and I because, you know, <laughs> they listen to the podcast or they were... Yeah, I find that... And it's funny, is it? Because so in my strange. head, I'm thinking... Do I know you? It's because they recognise me, yeah. but I don't recognise them. Then they say, it's Leslie. And I say, oh, and I get really excited yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> I know who you are now. But what, what's worth saying is they're doing this for nothing. Yeah, they are, yeah. We don't pay them so to no. do this. No. Nobody pays them to do <laughs> this. True. They have day jobs. They have children. They, mm, have, they have lives. Elderly parents. They are busy people. Yeah. And yet they still find time to do really decent, thoughtful reviews. Yes, they do. And and actually, it's quite grounding and humbling for all of us. You know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, I don't think it behoves any of us to get carried away with egos and all that no. sort of thing. I, I think that's essentially what Hobex all about, actually, is just... You know, it's being real rather yeah. than because it's it's interesting. You go to something like Crime Fest as we did, you know, a few months ago, and there's a split. Some of the authors can be a little bit, you know, can be a little bit egotistical, if dare I say it. One or two, one or two sort of carried themselves off as the great I am, and then you meet someone who's actually sold ten million books, and they're as humble as <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. lovely Anne Cleves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a good example. I mean, she's grand. I mean, you know. As uh, she's a quiet individual, goes to all these things, supports the industry, goes to lots of libraries, does tons of stuff like that, and yet yeah, very approachable, very humble, and yet you know she's done very well financially out of it. But still, to her, the thing that dominates her thoughts is her late husband, mm. and very open about that and the impact that's had on her life. Mm. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I want to ask, really, in terms of influences. Um, is there one author that, that stands out for you uh, who's uh, you know, really inspired you? I mean, I'm just going to say Agatha Christie, aren't I? I mean, who, who doesn't? I, I, yeah. she was, I wasn't a big reader as a, as a young person, didn't learn to read until I was eight, so reading was mm. always a chore for me. And I didn't, I think I read an Agatha Christie when I was about 11. I didn't really read it properly, but we had to take a book from the library yes, so yes, yeah. yes, yes, I recognised yeah. the name because I'd seen Margaret Rutherford on the telly so right. um, but it did stay with me so when I was old enough and I'm talking about frankly in my 30s yeah. to, to read a full novel I gravitated straight to Agatha Christie so I would say really that's the inspiration mm. yeah it's interesting I, I, you know, a lot of people we've to, spoken to have said the same thing and then there's others who viscerally can't stand Agatha Christie which is I, I'm surprised that there is a sort of Marmite quality to her work. Um, but one person turned around, to, or quite a famous author, and I can't remember exactly who, said, yeah, what, uh, what she writes is so cold. You know, It might actually have been Anne Cleves. I think it was. Yeah, it, it was. was. It was Anne Cleves at Crime Fest who she, said that. You yeah, know, she but, said, you're going to be surprised by my answer, but... Yeah, because <laughs> we asked her about whether Agatha Christie had played a part, because we'd just been to Devon and yeah. to the collection in Exeter. But I would say she's the queen of plots... You've yes. got to remember, she's. We, we, we read stuff these days with ingenious plots, but she was writing from, is it the mid 20s yes, onwards? So she was. She laid the ground with all these plots. I mean, all these stories that we have about people on a um, remote island yeah. and, and the numbers dwindle as somebody. A locked, locked room I mean, crime you know, stuff, you know. Absolutely. On a train. Yeah, she yeah. invented yeah. that yeah. idea, didn't yeah. she? So, so yeah. I think you've got to 
give her credit for her plots. I think so too. I think so too. And what was so interesting, what we found out in Devon, was just how neurotic she was. On top of (laughs) her huge success, how obsessed with every single shilling that she was owed being paid to her, Mm. even though she was a millionaire, multi-millionaire, extremely wealthy, you know, beyond dreams really uh, of the time, but still obsessed with, with cash. Uh, we ought to get around. I was going to ask more about where we're taking the series next, actually. That, that, that's my sort of penultimate question because the random question is around the corner. <laughs> um, what next for Steph? I've got a working title for the next one of Her Charming Man. Ooh. Ooh. And we see Steph investigating two crimes. One is the murder of a journalist. Yeah. And the other is the disappearance of... Um, a middle-aged man, a charming man, a charming according man. to his wife. He's a charming man. And again, two crimes that seem totally unconnected. Oh. Um, mm. But it's got, in terms of the location, which is uh, this sort of twist on Gloucester, I'm going to have Gleevum Cathedral. Yes. So there's something going to happen in the grounds of Gleevum Cathedral. And I'm also going to take Steph off to Sharpness. I recently went to the open day for the Seven Area Rescue Association, which is like the RNLI, yeah. but for rivers. Right. And I went to an open day and I had a talk there by uh, one of the uh, men who works for the rescue team. And it was so interesting. I thought, I'm going to get this in the book. <laughs> so I'm going to have Steph have to go down there and interview them, not because they're involved in the case, but because they've helped look for somebody in the river so i thought you know that's a chance to highlight what they do oh absolutely and it's such a peculiar river uh the bore and all that yes, stuff you know, the yeah. tidal nature of it it's yeah. an extraordinarily dangerous piece of water yes. so i uh, thought you know that was a chance to do a little bit of that yeah totally totally right okay it is time for the random question now i think uh, this is it's worrying for you it's worrying for me because i don't know what it is oh! <laughs> and Rebecca always worries that she's got to try and remember it. I was going to say to you, have you ever forgotten it? <laughs> Not yet. But, you have... but I usually think of it on the way to yeah. wherever we're going. But you, on a couple of occasions when we've grabbed people at festivals, oh, we, we have to do That's them on the fly. Hard. That's <laughs> a bit hard. But anyway, time for the deep voice. <clears throat> Rebecca's random question. Okay, your house is on fire. Every living creature from your house is safe. But what would you save? What is the one thing you'd save if you could save one thing from your house? The memory stick with my PhD on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in third year of three and a half years of PhD. So I've got a um, 100,000 word thesis that's in its final draft. Can we ask what it's on? It's um, it's a creative writing PhD. So okay. there is an 80,000 word novel, which is... Um, a literary work, and then ah. a 20,000-word thesis on trauma appropriation, which is basically asking what right does an author have to depict trauma in a novel when it's not their own personal trauma? So you're appropriating yes. the trauma of real people for entertainment. Brilliant. I'd wow. like to read that. <laughs> well, 
Soon to be Dr. Ray Sargent. <laughs> oh, I wish. I've got, still got a while to go yet. Yeah. I yeah. know, I have this image of you running out the house saying, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> that's all, I hope it's backed up elsewhere in the cloud. Yeah, I, was thinking, I was actually thinking that, thinking, please back it up somewhere else. <laughs> well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as, as we always say, I mean, we'd love to meet our authors in person. Oh, it's been lovely to yeah. meet you. Thank you for coming. And the sun's this... come out. Just yeah, as yeah coming I'm in, actually and, starting and to roast now. I can feel my forehead And now burning. you can see why I set... Yes. Her oh, deadly totally. friend in this wonderful garden. Yeah. So just to remind you, we are with Rachel Sargent. We are at the Painswick Rococo Gardens. You must come if you're in the area. If you're passing down, like we do very regularly, to Devon and Cornwall, stop off here. It's brilliant. Yeah, don't go it's... to Gloucester Services. Come here. Yeah. yeah. Forget Gloucester Services, which is like a magnet to me. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, 15 well, pounds well, this for Well, this has a lovely churifo. cafe with very fresh ingredients. So. Cheaper than Gloucester I've got to services. ask, before we go, this isn't a random question. What do you think of Gloucester Services being a local? I've only been to it once. Right. Because it is so local that if I'm going on a journey... It's yeah, not, why would you stop there? I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to stop no, further down. Not, yeah. He oh, makes no. a stop every time. Every you time. love it too. I used to. I've gone off it. <laughs> Have you? Why? Because it's so expensive, and the toilets are marvellous. It's always full of people in, I don't know, check shirts and and sea salt tops and, and... salmon trousers. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. It is full of that. But it's also full of dogs. And you can't got get a normal. You can't there. get a normal diet coke. It's a posh, no, you can't. It's a Fentiman's thingy <laughs> or a brew. Yeah, yeah, version of a diet coke. Okay. We talked about Gloucester services. I've got it off my chest. I do love that place. He does. Um, it looks like Teletubby land as well. It does a bit. It does a bit. But anyway, look, Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, and uh, thank you also to Nigel, who sat reading his book about white Russian gold uh, over <laughs> he there. He looks very content, though. Well, he's got he? a baseball cap. I wish I'd brought mine out because I'm, I'm roasting now. But uh, it's, been, it's been fantastic. So congratulations. Good luck with Her Deadly Friend. It's out this week. Please, our wonderful Hobcast listeners, go to our website, to buy a paperback go to Amazon to buy the ebook, and eventually at some point the audiobook will be available somewhere <laughs> sometime in the future and tell us what you think too we'd love to hear what you yes. think yeah absolutely yes, that's very very important but you know we're up for any feedback you have for our authors and for ourselves at any time but uh, Rachel thank you so much thank you thank you both so she would save her memory stick with her thesis on it from a fire? Well, she got me thinking because originally I was thinking, what would I say? And I was thinking, you know, I've got precious photo albums. I've got mm. memories from the children. I thought, do you know what? My laptop. Because in the last 20 years, mm. 15 years or so, all the important photographs are actually on the laptop. Yes. And and well, obviously Hobeck. I would have to save Hobeck and that's on my laptop. Yeah, I think so. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what I'd save. Something sentimental, but I haven't really got a lot of sentimental stuff really i don't have pictures of my kids here Uh, mm, i don't really do i you should get some pictures of them i know i know i know well you know (laughs) uh at some point but um i'm not sure there must be a a book that i would save or possibly my phone i guess i'm attached to that most of the day it seems anyway uh lovely to speak to rachel her Deadly Friend is out on Tuesday, as is Bullets in the Sand by A.J. Aberford, which is the second George Zammett uh, thriller. Yep. And it's a cracker. And not so long away is Hawk at the Crossroads. That's coming out too. So uh, he really has been busy. Yes, and he's actually delivered book number four to us. So 
Oh, I've, I've, that's one of the things I've got to get, get reading. I, I, I that just... wasn't a hint, by the way. No, I know. But I mean, boy, oh boy, this week was one of the busiest we've ever had. Um... Oh, I don't think our feet touched the ground. No, no, it was it. honestly. Uh, well, I spent three days in a um, in my mock up engineering suite <laughs> next to my he studio. He makes it sound so posh. We had um, we had a guest here. We had a guest here uh, recording one of our one of our audio books and uh or at least contributing towards it as one of the main characters we're we're doing it as a multi-voice production because quite simply um it has to be authentic and spot on and so that was what we did this week so i spent three days uh basically directing that from outside my studio um solidly very intense wasn't it it was extremely intense yeah i mean i was you know collapsing with exhaustion by about seven o'clock in the evening i should have made the most of it shouldn't i and and made you make decisions while you were too tired to care yeah (laughs) and our second guest actor is coming later this coming week to do something similar to play one of the other characters yeah and i'm playing one of the characters as well in fact i'm playing several of them because um i can turn myself to different voices you see and can you really? I haven't can. you? Yes, I can. I can do the Michael Caine, which is obviously Michael is going to appear in this. No, he's not. Um, I want one of our authors to add a cameo for Michael Caine, just so that you can do the narration. I would, yeah, exactly. That would inspire me. But I mean, we are taking a different direction with audio um, as we speak, and so one of the things that's coming up next month is finalising potentially a deal with an agent to represent our audio. More about that when we get that done. But um, that's in the offing. So we have been busy. Boy, have we been busy. And, uh, you know, with two books out this week, we'll continue to yeah. be busy. So, yeah, I mean, just now, before recording the end of this mm. podcast, I've been um, setting up the Facebook campaign for um, Her Deadly Friend. Yeah. Um, we I'll be w- doing the same with the Amazon campaign before I go Absolutely, to bed. Absolutely, yeah. So no rest for the wicked. Indeed not. And um, it's uh, it's... You know, it's exciting times. I love bringing books out and uh, bringing them to, you know, publication. In fact, funnily enough, <coughs> if you get yourself down to the Excuse Rococo me? Garden in the gift shop, you can already get Her Deadly Friend because they put it Signed up early. Signed copies too. Signed copies too. Indeed. With Hobart Bookmark. That was quite exciting. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for your company this week. Uh, so next week is the appearance of Zoe Sharp, um, who is a great writer. She's been been writing since 1988, she was telling us in terms of non-fiction, and then into the fiction world, and is a really celebrated crime fiction author who is much sought after on the circuit for yeah, the festivals. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot of charisma, hasn't oh, she? Oh, tons. And she's very sharp. <laughs> well, yeah. As well as being... No, she's got an incredible... It's an incredible story. Her life story is, is, is fabulous, and she has so much... Um, so many interests... She's, uh, you know, a, a sort of a Renaissance woman in many ways. And she has a fluffy cat. She does. In fact, she has two. And uh, we were um, delighted to speak to her. So that's our interview next week on the Hobcast, episode 87. But thank you for joining us for episode 86 here today with Rachel Sargent. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've got the cat lolling on the carpet in front of us. If we encourage her, she might say something. <laughs> she's not. She's so content. Yeah. Did you feed her? Is that why she's so? No, content? I haven't fed her. No, no. <laughs> it's time. Time. She. She's been assisting on food since we got back. But uh, no, she can wait. Uh, and indeed, uh, so can we all for next week's episode. If you've enjoyed the Hopcast, please subscribe to it wherever you get your 
podcast from. It means a great deal to us as we build our army of listeners. Uh, and, uh, of course, go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for details of all our authors, our books, our audio books as well, the ones that we've produced to date. And uh, really, it's just a chance for me, Adrian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. To wish you a wonderful, warm and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.